welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. Any one of you men who've been married for more than 15 minutes will know that there are some, uh, some days in the month where you've got to be pretty cautious about the kind of questions you might ask when you, when you first come home from work. And some of you guys might want to write this down, keep it in your wallet or your, uh, your pocket as a ready reference to avoid a marital crisis. But when we come home from work, there are questions that kind of form in our mind as soon as we come in, and we're liable to give voice to them unless we're really careful. So I want to kind of just clue you up this morning. A dangerous question when you come home from work is the question, what's for dinner? (laughs) Not a good question. A safer question would be, can I help you with dinner? All right? If you want to be ultra safe, you could say, let's go out to dinner. Hey. And even if you think that's a little risky, you could say, have some chocolate. A dangerous question when coming home from work for guys during some days of the month would be, are you wearing that? (laughs) Oh, risky. What about this as an alternative? Wow, you look stunning in brown. (laughs) Or even safer, wow, look at you. Or if you want to play it really safe, have some chocolate. (laughs) A dangerous question when you come home. What are you so worked up about? A better question. Could we, note the we, could we be overreacting a little? Still risky, you think? Yeah. A better thing to say would be, here's $50. (laughs) Or you could try, have some chocolate. (laughs) A dangerous question when coming home from work some days of the month, should you be eating that? (laughs) A better statement might be, you know, we have a lot of apples left. A better question, even safer, might be, can I get you a glass of wine with that? Or, if you want to be absolutely safe, have some chocolate. Another dangerous question, what did you do all day? Oh. Perhaps it's better to use a statement, I hope you didn't overdo it today. Or you could try, I've always loved you in that dressing gown. 
Or you could use, have some chocolate. Money might talk, but chocolate sings. Questions. We ask questions all the time. Last week in the Welcome Lounge, it was pretty busy, Glyn, wasn't it? It was pretty full on. The interesting thing that happens in the Welcome Lounge is that visitors get a succession of people welcoming them. And invariably, they get the same questions repeated. (laughs) Is this your first time here? Where do you live? Have you been going to church before? And visitors have to trot out the same answers several times. But that's how we get information about people is we ask questions. Indigenous Australians don't use questions. To use questions for Aboriginal people tends to be a little impolite. But we're quite comfortable with questions because we do it all the time. God's pretty comfortable with questions as well. Yet the interesting thing is, God knows everything. He doesn't have to mine for information. He's, that big word, omniscient, knows it all. And yet he asks questions. Why would he ask questions if he already knows the answers? Well, I thought it would be really good to look at some of God's questions this morning. And I want to let you know that because God knows everything already, God's questions are for our benefit, not for his. Frequently, God's questions put a focus on an attitude or a circumstance or situation a key issue in our life that we might need to deal with in order to move on in our relationship with God. God's questions invariably hone in on an area of our life that needs his redemptive work. So I want to look at some of those questions and try and learn some things about what is it that God's looking for when he asks somebody a question, but also to learn some stuff about our relationship with God. Now, I want to give you the takeaway bit. Before, during, and after all the content today. So here's the takeaway bit. If you're going to write notes, this is the bit to write down, then you can nod off. All right. The takeaway bit is God's questions are not for his information, but for our transformation. All right? I made it up. I'm impressed. God's questions are not for his information, but for our transformation, so we can change. God has a habit of asking questions. Moses, his uh, attention is captured by a burning bush. He goes over to stand close to the bush, and God says, that's enough. This voice from the, from the burning bush. This is holy ground. Take your shoes off. And there's a conversation that happens. And God says some very interesting things. And I'm always impressed with how God will take a situation and then 
our logic would say it should go to some conclusion, a particular conclusion, but God goes to a different conclusion. Listen to these things. In Exodus 3 and verse 7, God says, I have observed the misery of my people. Israel is in slavery in Egypt. God's talking about that. The misery of my people who are in Egypt, I've heard their cry, I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them, to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I've also seen how the Egyptians oppress them. Our conclusion would be God's going to rescue them. God's conclusion is, so I will send you, he's talking to Moses, God's aware of the need, he's going to send Moses. I will send you. It shouldn't surprise us that when God becomes alert to a need, invariably he sends a man or a woman to co-mission with him. To work in partnership with God to bring about their rescue or their deliverance. If God shares a need with you, here's another thing to write on your little list to keep in your wallet. If God shares a need with you, you should think about getting ready to travel and travel light. Because invariably, if God shares a need with you, he wants you to do something about it. Walk with me while I go backstage. Often, Cameron comes to our house. Cameron is Elise and Ben's little boy. I love watering the garden with Cameron. But I've got to tell you that watering the garden with Cam takes a long time. Much longer than if I were to do it myself. One of the reasons might be that his watering can is rather small. It could be a factor. But the other reason might be Cameron, who's two years and eight months or something, uh, Cameron has a propensity for getting wet. So 50% of my time is spent in protecting him from drowning himself, which his mother wouldn't be very pleased about. But invariably, I love watering the garden with Cam because he takes such delight at doing it. And it reminds me frequently of how it must be for God for us to help him. Do you get the picture? We're a great help to God. We are. God loves us helping him. But I bet it takes a lot longer than if he were to do it himself. Here's this star-breathing, miracle-working God, and he invites us to participate with him in it. Eh? One of the things that I think I lose perspective on sometimes is that missioning with God and taking on board responsibility for ministry in response to God's call to us is not a punishment, but a privilege. Sometimes if you're in ministry, you guys in the front row, if you're in ministry, sometimes it feels more like a punishment than a privilege. But I've got to tell you, it is a privilege to work in partnership with God. 
And despite the difficulties that were facing Moses, God invites him to participate in a mission to set his people free. And at the burning bush, God asks him a question. After he's told him, you're the man. Moses is standing there. This is my poor impersonation of a shepherd's staff. This is for very narrow-necked sheep. It's a specialist implement. Moses is standing there with his staff and God says to him, what's that in your hand? Dumb question. Why, why would God ask that? Did God not know what it was? Why would God ask him a question? What is that in your hand? Moses gets really creative and he responds, a staff. Now, what was the significance of asking that question? We'll come back to it. God tells Moses to throw it down on the ground, and Moses does. He should have thrown it a bit further, because what happens is it turns into a serpent. Now, this is not a coiled children's python kind of snake, because the Bible tells us that Moses withdrew from it. It was an angry snake. And then God tells him, as an act of faith, now pick it up by the tail. Would you do that? He picks it up and it becomes a staff again. And all is right with the world once more. Why ask the question? Why this particular thing for Moses? Because God wanted Moses to know that God himself was equipping Moses for the task to which God had called him. As soon as we become confident in our own ability, our reliance on God diminishes. The kingdom of God is all about people being ill-equipped of their own to do the work of ministry but equipped by God himself. God gave Moses this particular miracle to be able to demonstrate his um, calling from God and his appointment to leadership with the Israelites, first and foremost. How will they accept that I, I've heard you from a burning bush? Like, that's ridiculous. No one's going to believe that. So God gives him this sign to perform, to demonstrate that he has had an encounter with God. And it's God's authority under which he's operating. And this staff became a badge, a symbol of authority for Moses. He used it to smite. That's an old word, isn't it? Smite. It sticks with a staff, doesn't it? Um, to really smite the Nile to bring about the river changing and turning into blood. It became part of the plagues that Egypt had to cope with as part of God's judgment. Moses uses this to hit the Red Sea and cause it to, to part, to hold it up when the battle with the Amalekites is going on. It becomes a symbol of his office to hit the rock and bring out water so that people can quench their thirst. It became a badge of office Dumb question, what's that in your hand? 
But God is able to turn that around to point Moses' direction and Moses' thinking to the point that I'm equipping you. You're not qualified, but I qualify you. God was qualifying Moses for his mission. The best work in the kingdom of God is done by people who know that of themselves they are not qualified. As soon as we feel qualified, we become less reliant on God. Do you feel ordinary? I do, most days. If you feel ordinary, you're just the kind of person God wants to use. Another question God asked somebody else. Where is your brother Abel? You'll know the story. Where is your brother Abel? What have you done? Your brother's blood is crying out to me from the land. So God clearly understood the answer to the question. Why is he asking him the question? Because God is making Cain aware that his responsibility extends to his brother as well as to himself. What have you done? God knew that Cain had killed his brother. Spilled blood can't be shoveled underground. Its cry resounds in heaven and captures God's attention. What can we learn from that question? I think we can learn that we Christians have surrendered the right to live in isolation from other people and to live without any responsibility towards other people, especially people of the family of faith. In his questions to Cain, God expresses his horror at this unspeakable act of fratricide. That's the murder of one's brother. And he passes judgment on Cain. He sends Cain out of his presence. But interestingly enough, he never removes his protection of Cain. Cain's still under God's protection, but he's out of of his presence. Another interesting question. What are you doing here? Elijah's had a great victory over the prophets of Baal. This is this story is in First Kings. Had a great victory. Four hundred and fifty prophets of Baal are killed. God proves that he is God. But then a woman, a woman looks Elijah in the eye and says, you're dead. And he loses perspective and he runs away. He travels a a day's journey into the wilderness and he sits down and he feels depressed, alone and sorry for himself. And God asks him, what are you doing here? And Elijah gives his poor me speech. Look what's happened to me. I'm the only one left. Now she's going to kill me. God doesn't respond. He says, go to a mountain. And obediently, Elijah goes to the mountain. And what happens on the mountain is there's a hurricane. 
Then there's an earthquake. Then there's a fire. And then there's the sound of sheer silence. And in the sheer silence, Elijah hears a small voice. What does God say? Same question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Well, the answer is, you told me to come here. Like, you told me to come to the mountain. Yes, but behind that, what are you doing in the wilderness? What are you doing out of ministry? What are you doing isolated from the people I've sent you to minister to? The Bible records that Elijah says exactly the same thing that he said the first time to God. Word for word. The poor me speech again. And God doesn't respond with judgment or condemnation or, or anything like that. He just lets it go. And then he gives Elijah a task to do. He reinstigates the ministry that Elijah has been called to. Get back in the game. That's what he's saying. Get back in the game. God's question identified that Elijah have moved out of the ministry and effective service to which God had called him. The Garden of Eden, the serpent comes and uh, says to Adam and Eve, if you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will become, your eyes will be opened and you'll become like God's. And that's exactly what happened. Well, they didn't become God's, but their eyes were opened. They realized something that they'd not realized before. It didn't make them God's. Rather, it caused, to, caused them to suffer disruption in their relationship with each other and in their relationship with God. Because they realized something that they never realized prior to this. And God asks the question. We'll get to it in a minute. The interesting thing to me is they don't suffer guilt as a result of taking this, this fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What they suffer is shame. They suddenly are aware that they're both starkers. They're naked. And they suffer shame. To cover their shame, they cover themselves in fig leaves and animal skins. And they do that to be more comfortable with each other because something has changed in their relationship. Here's a clear example of the consequences of sin. In responding to God's inquiries, the man seeks to exonerate himself and blame the woman. But this is an example of what happens with sin. Not only is the relationship with God disrupted, but the relationship between people as well. So they experience shame. They also experience fear of God. It's not a holy fear. It's a disrupting fear. They hide. And when God comes walking in the garden and can't find them, he calls out to them. Adam, where are you? And Adam eventually replies, I was afraid because I was naked. And then comes God's question. Adam has incriminated himself. The very uh, 
excuse that he uses is evidence of his crime. And God says, who told you you were naked? How could you learn this? How would you realize that you were naked? You didn't know that before. What's happened? What's changed? God puts his finger on the very issue. And invariably, that's what his questions do. There's a great book in the Bible called Job. It's not Job. It's Job. And uh, it's a very well-crafted book. If you ever get, uh, get bored, a good exercise is to w- try and work out the structure of Job because it's perfectly symmetrical. There are lots of boring speeches in it that sound plausible, um, that end up being wrong, but uh, it's a great book. In the book, Job has a bit of a rant uh, with his friends and he asks God some questions. It's kind of like God uh, is put in the witness box of a court of law and Job is going to ask him questions about why all this stuff is happening to me. And God responds with this. I hope it's on the screen in a minute. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your... You can imagine God, big booming voice saying these things. Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And the next couple of chapters is all about these questions. Can you put a hook in Leviathan? Do you know where the storehouses of hail and rain are? All these questions. Great tirade almost from God. And Job has no answer. He's stunned to silence because he realizes that God is so much bigger so much wiser, so much more gracious than he. In his quest to understand all that has happened to him, Job is silenced by God's questions. I'm going to tell you where we're coming from, where we're going to this morning yet again. God's questions are not for his information, but for our transformation there are many passages in uh, the Old Testament prophets where the prophets on behalf of God ask questions lots and lots of them one example only final chapter of Isaiah Isaiah is speaking God's words and he's proclaiming a new significance for Jerusalem or to use his name for it, Zion. Only a small minority of people uh, from Judah had come back from exile. There's a small minority returned to their land that's been devastated. And in that small minority, there's even a smaller minority of true God worshippers. So things are looking grim, even though they've returned to their homeland. But Isaiah, at God's instructions, proclaims an astounding creative act from God of bringing forth a new nation out of the ashes of the old one. And this is to be no gradual rebuilding program, but this is to be a powerful creative act 
of a wonder-working, miracle-working, star-breathing God that he's going to implement. It's probably not going to happen soon, but longer term, towards the final events of human history, God will bring joy and comfort to a disheartened people and he asks these questions. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in a moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Why would God ask those questions if it were not possible? It's similar to the question that God asks Ezekiel in chapter 37 when Ezekiel is seeing a vision of a valley of dry bones and God says to him, can these bones live? They're dead. They're, they're being bleached by the sun. God asks the question, can these bones live? Why would he ask that question if the answer is not yes? The same here. Resoundingly, yes, a nation can be brought forth in a moment because everything is possible for God. Do you know also the corollary of that is all things are possible to him who believes. Eh? Everything possible for God, all things are possible to him who believes because we believe in a miracle working God. These questions were for God's people and they were to raise their faith in God and to change their perspective from being discouraged to being encouraged. From being depressed to being impressed by the God that they serve. If you're discouraged, if you're defeated, if you're depressed... Know this, that God can restore you in a moment, in a heartbeat. Whether he chooses to do that or not is another thing, but God can. He can breathe his spirit over your life and over your situation. He can breathe his spirit into you and change you in an instant. This is a God who breathes stars, who speaks worlds into being. A portion of this verse from Isaiah has plagued me, if I can use that term, plagued me over the last few months. It's the reason I'm talking on this topic this morning. It's kind of one of those things that God's dropped in my head to say, your view of me is far too small. Enlarge your vision of me. Jesus is leaving Jericho. And there's a blind guy, a blind beggar, calling out to him, trying to be heard over the cacophony of noise as the crowd follows Jesus. Jesus hears Bartimaeus and he says, call him over, bring him here to me. And so Bartimaeus comes, he throws off his, his uh, cloak and comes to Jesus. And Jesus asks a curious question. Here's a beggar. He's probably wearing rags. He's way below the poverty line. He ekes out an existence every day in the same spot. 
his begging spot. Probably would have a begging bowl and the coat that he threw off. And that's it. It's obvious what he needs. And Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? You're crying out to me. What do you want? Bit of a strange question, I would have thought. And then Bartimaeus responds. And, and his response is a bit like a prayer. He says, Lord, let me recover my sight. Now, the word Lord is the same word that Mary uses when she sees Jesus for the first time after the resurrection. Rabboni, Rabbi. So it's a bit like a prayer. That's what he wants. He had to declare what his true desire was before Jesus. So that he had the sound of him asking the question in his ears. He would know for the rest of his life that his life had changed because he'd had an encounter with Jesus. And he would never ever be the same. What do you want me to do for you? What would you say if God asked you that? What if he asked you today, what do you want me to do for you? What would your response be? Jesus and his disciples go home to Capernaum. They go inside the house and Jesus says to them, what were you arguing about on the way? He knows full well what they're arguing about, about significance. Who's, who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? And he uses that question as an opportunity to teach some stuff about what it means to be great within the kingdom of God. And it's the reverse of what it means to be great in the world. He's talking to Peter and he says, do you love me? He asks him three times. He's reinstigating, reinstituting Peter's calling to ministry. Do you love me? He knew the answer. Why would he ask Peter that? Because Peter had to get it right in his own mind. He had to come back to the point of understanding that he loved Jesus and Jesus was the most important person in the world to him. Maybe the worship team might like to come up. God continues to bother us with questions. We can ignore them or try to ignore them, but they still remain. We can offer excuses, but still the questions niggle away at us and convict us. We can offer some sidestepping or some excuses perhaps. We can try to deflect their focus like Adam did. But they still cry out to be answered. When we turn to God, God always accepts us as we are. But he loves us far too much to leave us where we are. God is a good God. He is always wanting good for his children. Just as we who are parents always want our kids to do well and to have all the best things. 
God is the ultimate parent. God asks questions because he wants people to reach their potential in him. He doesn't want them to get sidetracked or hijacked. He wants them to be the very best that they can be. He wants them to be all that he intended them to be. And when he makes us squirm and he concentrates his attention on an area of our life, on an issue, on an attitude, his intention is for our good and for his glory. What sort of questions might God be asking you today? And remember, God's questions are not for his information, but for our transformation. The key to these questions is that God's in a good mood. God likes us. God loves us. He's not wanting to judge us or condemn us or sideline us or destroy us. He wants everyone to be saved. He wants everyone to experience his goodness. He wants everyone to be in a relationship with himself so that they can reach their destiny in him. So he asks questions. Do you love me? What are you doing here? Are you content to merely believe in me? Even demons believe in Jesus. So it's more than belief. What are you doing with what I give you? What on earth are you doing? That's a good question. It's the title of a book by Michael Griffiths. But it's a good question, isn't it? What on earth are you doing? Who do you say that I am? Or, as with Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? I reckon it's much better to face up to God's questions now in this life than to face his questions when we kneel before him in eternity. Because here we've got opportunity to do something about it. To throw ourselves on his mercy and grace. And to change. I wonder what he'll ask us when we kneel before him in eternity. I wonder if he'll ask some of the questions he's already asked. What's that in your hand? We're hanging on to some earthly treasure that is about as valuable as a dead leaf are we when we come before him in eternity what's that in your hand dust well what are you doing here that would be a devastating question note the emphasis what are you doing here where is your brother your sister your wife your husband well, what did I do with what did you do with what I gave you? Would he ask that question? The conclusion is the same as the beginning. God's questions are not for his information, but for our transformation. Let's pray.
I've run dry, so I'm going to drink before we pray. Father, what a privilege to be able to call you that. Our dad. Thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you so much that you are never content to allow us to just exist, but that you seek our well-being and you seek for us that which is the best that we can be. Thank you for not allowing us to just be mediocre or ordinary that you call us into a partnership with yourself that enables your spirit to live within us with all the fullness of God and that changes us from being ordinary to being extraordinary we are so blessed by your goodness to us by your mercy, by your encouragement and by your very presence in our life. So Lord, if you're putting your finger on any area or issue or attitude in our life, we want to surrender to you today and invite you to deal with those things that would hold us back in our relationship with you. Thank you for being good. Thank you for wanting us to be better than we are, to be more than we have yet become. We worship you and ascribe honour and glory and majesty to your name. This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen and God bless.